I'm not going to own a home. I'm not going to go to grad school. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids when I was like 25, because I thought I want a free life. I want a free life of any responsibility. I want to just travel the world and do whatever I want. Yes. And then like reality set in. What I learned is what I want in my early twenties is not the same as what I want when I'm 27, 28, 29. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Obviously the Future, the show that explores the massive trends that'll shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Who's joining us here today, Caitlin? Yeah, so today we're talking to Catalina. She's the CEO of Loan Sense, an innovative company that helps individuals with student loans qualify for mortgages. And I met Catalina, we actually met her maybe three years ago, and she was one of the most passionate advocates for people being able to get on the home ownership journey. And she's an inspiring figure who was once a skeptic of home ownership, but a strong conversion. She's gone deep with regulators, loan officers, and homeowners, and the conversation will be fascinating. Awesome. Welcome to Obviously the Future, Catalina. Excited to, to be here. Let's jump right in. So overall, just want to provide a little context here. So you work with people on reducing their student loan payments to help them on the path to home ownership. Now, exactly. student loans wouldn't be my first guess as like the big barrier to becoming a homeowner. So to, can you just talk me through how you came to identify this as the issue and how you built this solution to it? So absolutely. How I identified this as a barrier is because it was my own personal barrier. So in 2015, I went to buy my first home and I spoke to two different lenders who like didn't even respond to my calls after I submitted their in- my information. And I was like, what's going on? I had no intention of shopping lenders. I was just literally just trying to get an application in. Yeah. And so these two lenders never responded. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to go try to find somebody, except I try to ask some connections. Hey, do you have somebody to recommend? Because maybe this time they won't blow me off. So I sat down with somebody from Regions Bank and they were actually a big sponsor of the nonprofit I worked for at the time. And so I went to them and the loan officer said, pay down your student loan debt, come back later. And I thought to myself, how much will this house be worth? How long will I eat ramen? What kind of financial sacrifices am I going to have to make in order to buy a house? I didn't know how much does my debt need to be paid out. I had none of those answers. I had to like self-research what's going to happen. And of course, like at that time I was given notice in the apartment I was living in that my amount I had to pay would go up. And so I was like, I need to start researching this. So I started researching and I essentially found out that the regulators of the mortgage market pass rules that would allow student loan borrowers to go into different federal plans based on your income. And that if you in fact get a lower payment amount, that would help you qualify to buy a house. Step back one second here. So first of all, what was the simple metric that they were using to say you were not house worthy? So to get into the gist, of course, to qualify for a mortgage, they care about your credit score because they want to know if you can, if you're going to actually stick with your obligation. They care about your debt to income because they don't want to over leverage anybody, right? They don't want to, if you earn $4,000 a month, they don't want your debt payments to be like 75% of your earnings or something where it's going to force you to basically go into foreclosure as soon as you close, right? I had a debt to income problem 
on the front end because mostly because of my student loans. I didn't have credit card debt. I didn't have yeah. a car payment or, or anything like that. With most Americans, especially after the pandemic, like our consumer debt has gone up significantly with car loans. So debt to income is actually the leading reason why people can't buy. It's not credit score anymore. Is student debt the biggest portion of that debt? Okay, so within debt to income, yeah. It depends on the population, but with first-time buyers, the biggest issues are car loans and student loans. Credit card debt, even though people have it at very high amounts, lenders in the debt to income only count the minimum payment, which is crazy to me because if you make the minimum payment, you're yeah. never going to get out yeah. of debt. So, if you have 50,000 of credit card debt, but your minimum payments only $50 because they want yes. you to stay in debt indebted forever. They're only counting the $50. So despite the amount of credit card debt Americans hold, it's not a huge barrier. Yes. But car loans yes. are a huge barrier. And so are student loans because during the pandemic, the student loans have become an even greater barrier because when you're not in repayment, a lot of lenders will just use straight out 1% of your balance. So if you have $80,000 of student loans, they will use $800 towards your debt to income. So if you're earning the average amount, like an average earning American earning around 75,000, that's the average, yeah. like $800 a month is a huge percentage in the debt to income formula, which could exclude you in most housing markets from being able to buy. Even if you're buying at a very modest price entry level, like starter home that needs repairs, like that $800 yeah is gonna leave very yes. little room. And lenders don't need to use $800 though. Lenders can get their borrowers into a plan that's truly based on their income that will actually qualify them for loan forgiveness. That will reduce the overall, what's called the debt to income, right? And that will help the borrower now under at least understand their options to qualify or afford more. We obviously say just because you can afford more doesn't mean you should afford more. We're just saying, at least knowing what the options are, are really important. How does that forgiveness work? Like how big of an impact is that really? And has it changed significantly? I feel like we hear about it all the time. What we hear about you know, on the news all the time are politically charged topics of loan forgiveness. The 10 to 20,000 is very politically charged because it's, oh, it's blanket forgiveness. The political is, what did they do to deserve that? Like average Americans that didn't go to college yeah. also deserve debt forgiveness. That's yeah. a politically charged argument. But the debt forgiveness that we're qualifying bars for have been in existence since the early 2000s. And they're not politically charged because you still have to have made 120 to 240 payments, depending on your employer and the program. Once you've made right. your minimum payments over that amount of time, whatever you don't make is forgiven. It's not as politically charged because you have actually made a payment and you're working towards getting out of debt. Whereas blanket forgiveness is much, much more politically charged. With all the debt forgiveness conversations, I've often wondered, are students still racking up debt at the same rates now? Is the next cohort of potential first-time homebuyers, or do they still have the same debt that our generation had graduating? Are we correcting it at the root issue at all, or is it still just racking up as we discuss forgiveness on the other end? So it's funny because that's also part of the political conversation. You're trying to forgive debt, but we're not fixing the root problems. I think 
the market, what's happening in the market right now are people coming up college age are thinking much more strategically about, is it worth it? Because they've seen the generation prior rack up all this debt and have all these stories in the media. So I think the market's correcting itself because the applications to the majority of colleges, I'm not talking about the IVs or the top 20 or whatever, but the majority of colleges applications and enrollment is shrinking especially in this pandemic era. And what's happening right now at a mass rate are colleges are just shutting down. Like especially religious institutions, small institutions that aren't the top 100 are shutting down. So we have 4,000 plus colleges, universities, for-profit online schools, all these things. That's the OG avalanche. The original avalanche paper was exactly about this like coming wave of college shutdowns because it wasn't providing value for money. And I mean, there's bar defense right now where the government has basically made a list of almost 100 colleges that have actually lied and defrauded students on their statistics. So people enrolled and aren't getting the outcomes because they lied about what the outcomes are. And so now the government's forgiving a massive amount of student loan debt for people who have been lied to. So now they're on this blacklist, basically. So those schools are likely going to be shut down because the government's not going to give loans to continue to support your institution. The market is correcting it with basically people being aware, am I going to get the value out of this? What am I signing up for? The government's doing some things like like creating this blacklist. I think there's much more the Department of Education can be doing though. They have every four years, the Department of Education will study the cohort default rates of colleges. And if your default rates are too high on your student loan payback, then the government won't give you favorable terms for your students to borrow to go to the school. So there's things that the government is trying to create accountability, but what ends up happening is the colleges understand the game. So then they hire consultants to try to go and address specific things that can tweak their statistics without thinking holistically, how do we make our institution better? We should switch to the home ownership side because that's like the pot of gold at the end of the education life rainbow, right? In the US, it's always been like, you go to school, you get your first job, you're able to buy your first home. But we've been fed this narrative in the last 10 years that millennials and Gen Zs, they're all renters, they're not buyers. They don't really need homes. Anyway, we know Catalina that you think differently. You've dug deep into the data. So what do you say when people say that to you? First of all, it's untrue. That narrative exists because, um, Our generation, because of the affordability crisis in the housing market, they'll have platforms that allow people to co-buy. If you're siblings, you could buy duplex together and each live on a side. Or if you're best friends, you could do the same. But that's because there's an affordability crisis. And so the narrative, like affordability crisis that forced people to be renters for longer. And so they're conflating it with, oh, that means they must like to rent. It's no... I don't think their desire is to rent forever. Their desire is to make goals so that eventually they can buy. But if we make the goalposts harder and harder to achieve, then the stats for our generation is that we own at about three percentage points under like our prior generation, which you think, oh, three percentage points, that's not huge, but it's huge in terms of like hundreds of thousands of of more people in our specific age ranges behind the buying target The narrative is they must like it. Let's create all these business models where they can co-live and 
be renters yeah. in ways that we can reduce our costs because we'll just put five people in one building kind of thing and charge them almost the same as if they have their own apartment and then get, say they get all these amenities and they're going to love this because they're the sharing economy generation, yeah. right? Yeah. There's this narrative, but if somebody had to choose, if I can live in a building with five other people, it might be convenient when you're in your twenties and you're single, but when you want to think about getting married and family formation, they want something that's very similar to prior generations. It might be slightly different. Like maybe the square footage requirement isn't the same. Maybe they want to value experiences and being able to travel. So they want to live under their means more. Maybe they like the idea of a smaller space, a tiny house even. There's things that change about this generation, but it's not that they just want to be part of a renter class forever. Your customers are loan officers, right? So yeah, so our customers, Customers are, we have a combination model, but we've built our platform to be double-sided. We want lenders to understand the value of being able to help borrowers with their student loans in terms of their loan uplift, because at the end of the day, obviously they're a business. We onboarded loan officers first to build a bottom-up sales pipeline to be able to go to enterprises, which now we're getting in front of more and more enterprises. What do the loan officers see for home ownership demand on the front lines? Are they coming to you and saying, hey, I, I see this demand. There's a lot of demand out there, but there's a barrier. So yes, they know it's true. They just, when they learn about us, they're like, number one, I didn't know there was a solution. Number two is we just don't understand student loans. Like we send them away to say, do something. We don't understand student loans. We don't understand the options. We don't understand what to tell them to do. And those are the pain points that Loan Sense solves for. Because the front end is like, what lenders, the biggest pain point they, they have is obviously they understand there's an issue. Number one, they don't know what to do with it. Number two is they don't realize how large of an issue it is. So what we'll do is we can help them look at their numbers and show them how many loans that they're turning away that they don't need to turn away. So at the enterprise level, they can learn, okay, we're turning away 151 loans. This is an example of the real lender, 151 loans a month, literally that we've turned away that does not need to be turned away because the driving debt to income issue, which is the student loan for these 151 loans could have been adjusted down and that could have re reached their affordability number. So we help lenders understand those numbers, and then we help them understand what's the medium under which now they get consumer consent to then send them to loan sense. So we have that consumer facing side and the consumer facing side was developed ahead of the lender facing side of our platform. I've read a lot about how ownership is basically the main indicator of the inequality in America. So who primarily by solving this debt to income ratio, are you helping along, be it along class lines, racial lines? How does this fit into an inequality narrative here? 90% plus of the consumers that come through are minorities. So wow. huge minority population and 90% make under $80,000. So very large population of moderate income Americans and of course, our average reduction is $600 a month. So these are people who earn under $80,000 that have a higher debt amount than their income. That's the core person that's going to benefit the most. And those are the core people that are going to have trouble qualifying for a home. So those, so not to say, oh, our software is amazing. It's to say that we're getting the message out to the right people 
within these lenders, right? Because the lenders are sending individuals through. So the average amount of the average student loan payment is $350 for the undergrad. But the reason we're able to get the reduction down so much is because majority of people coming through our platform are earning under $80,000 and they have a way higher payment than the average. And yeah. that used to be the minority of borrowers. But now as of 2021, it has flipped. Like we've reached the 51% mark of people that are graduating with more debt than income. Wow. You know that, and this yeah. is studied at the six month post-graduation mark. When you go into repayment, it accounts for the people that don't have jobs as well. Obviously their income is zero if they don't have a job by that point, but 51, we reached a tipping point where now 51% and that includes both undergrad and grad school, right? It's not disaggregated, yep. but 51% of the population plus that have the hold student loans are actually graduating with more debt than income. And it's a metric that dictates their pathway and their potential struggles with repayment because most Americans that starting salary dictates their lifetime earnings. Yeah. So it's not like you come out of college, you get a job. Okay. I get, I got this job. I'm earning $50,000. Most Americans don't go back to grad school for most people. Their earnings are just going to go up a little from that yeah. initial salary. And so it projects really what their lifetime ability to pay back would look like for the majority of people. So it's not a good metric. Of course, there's always that elite percentage of people who come out, do some kind of internship and then go to law school or medical sure. school or something. But again, very low percentage of the population. Yeah. Looking forward in, in people's lives, like how do you still link between being a successful homeowner and the ability to retire? So 82% of the average American's wealth at retirement comes from the value of their home. 82%. So that literally means the other 18% is what they saved and invested. So if we create a renter class and a narrative of, oh, these people don't want to own, it just means less wealth, less money accumulated at retirement. It means that and, the public will have to bear the burden of right, support of, yeah. yeah, supporting people. Right, supporting people. Absolutely. And so it's as much as I've heard people like, I just don't want to deal with owning a house. I want to rent. I make a choice to rent. I hear this. I just think, I used to think that there's things I thought when I graduated undergrad and after I came out of the Peace Corps, I'm not going to own a home. I'm not going to go to grad school. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids when I was like 25, because I thought I want a free life. I want a free life of any responsibility. I want to just travel the world and do whatever nice. I want. Yes. And then like reality set in, it's like, how do you actually afford to do that? You know? <laughs> how do you like, there are moments of rebellion of people that want to, but anyways, what I learned is what I want in my early twenties is not the same as what I want when I'm 27, 28, 29 yes. onwards. And of course I went to grad school when I was 32. There's all this research that like, we're so good at looking backwards and recognizing how different our past selves are but so bad at looking forward and look, thinking about how different our future selves will be. We've been talking around this kind of implicitly, but essentially, if you look at Loan Sense, it really, they're talking about people who've graduated from some sort of undergrad or postgrad degree, then they're earning to, it, with Loan Sense, eventually own. Can you try to spell out why is this journey so important? Why is this narrative one that's so critical? First of all, 
I exist because my passion to help the borrower, it, it's like where my heart is, right? It's that's like my story. The reason it's so important is because there is no go-to person to get help with this problem, which is I have a lot of debt. A lot of it is student loan debt. What are my options? What do I do? Let's think about the financial professionals that exist in the market. Okay, let me start with graduating school. There's a financial aid office. Financial aid knows very little about repayment options. I would say they know barely anything. They just know you can't default or it's going to hurt their school rating. They know very little. That's why they hire consultants to contact people to get them in the right plan because they don't want their default rates to go up. So the financial aid officer or when you're graduating, there's no one at the school that knows anything. Then you come out, right? You start a bank account. Nobody at your bank really understands. They might offer to refinance your loan if you earn enough money and that you have a good enough credit. But most people graduating school don't really earn a huge amount and don't have an amazing credit score unless they have a co-signer, right? So it's not really your bank. Then you go to, wait, what? When you when you start accumulating wealth, maybe a financial advisor. Again, a financial advisor does not have any much more knowledge than your bank does about your student loan options. Okay, you can call your servicer. They're terrible. In fact, now they're being sued like Navient for steering people into forbearance over getting them into the right repayment plan. And they don't give personalized information because by the way, when you call up this call center, they can go to the studentaid.gov site and try to navigate you. But the reality is they're making under $15 an hour. They don't really have that great of knowledge. And their incentive to help you is low because they're just a customer service call center person. It's not like they're comped more if they help you get into the best student loan plan. In fact, if you get into the best student loan plan that either helps you understand how to get out of debt sooner or how to get loan forgiveness, it may actually hurt their bottom line because they might get the loan transferred to another servicer who manages specific programs. So that will hurt them. They're not incented to give you the best advice. So who is incented to give you the best advice? Really, there's no professional in the market. And the reason the mortgage process is such a pivotal time is because if you have a great goal, if you have a goal to do something, like I want to finally stop renting, I want to get into a house, I want to get married, start a family, and I don't want to start a family renting, and then the landlord sells the property, then we need to scramble to move what it's in a bad school system, all these things, right? So the mortgage loan officer actually is what I call the financial advisor to the common person. They are actually most incentivized to help you at that point in time is because that implication of not helping you could possibly mean that they don't give you a loan for your house. It actually has the most incentive to get you in the right direction, including even people who don't get loan forgiveness that could possibly after growing equity in their home, take out a cash out to pay down their debt and not have such a high yeah. interest. Although maybe this isn't the market now, but the point yeah. is they have more of an incentive. So when you study the market that way, we can almost be an extension of that lender and say, hey, we can act as a specialized knowledge to help you. You can originate more loans and we can act as an extension of your business, right? By filling yep. this need so that you can qualify more borrowers. Like, why is it yep. so pivotal? Because a lot of people that come through our service are told no before they found someone yeah. that could send them through the loan sense experience. Totally. They've told, been told no on yeah. buying a house prior. Our view at Avalanche is that learn, earn, own is like a layer cake. And in a capitalist society, which is the one we live in and 
we invest in. The ultimate goal is to own assets that can generate wealth and prosperity for you and your family. But to get there, you have to have the bottom of the cake, which is learning and learning skills that can allow you to earn and ideally earn and continue learning to increase your earning power so that you can turn that into ownership. And the reason that we were so excited about meeting you, Catalina, and Loan Sense is that making that, for most Americans, just as you said, making that jump from turning your earning into owning an asset really is the house, the homeownership. Mm-hmm. It's 80%. And I read the reason that homeownership is so important is that people naturally aren't great savers and they think that they can like time the market. And so there's all these like bad investing things that they do. But a home is a long-term asset that they can't trade out of easily. And that allows the accumulation of wealth over time. The second thing is it creates an investment in the local community. So people are invested into the rule of law, the legal framework, the local school system, the crime and sanitation of the community in a way that renters who don't feel a financial stake in growing the value of their asset feel. I think about just from a company standpoint, like great employees are ones who think like owners for whatever they're doing. Yeah, we did a case study with one of the regulators and we helped their data analytics team understand the formula on how to reduce the student loan. And they were able to show pretty significant uplift in the potential percentage of ownership for the African-American community just by tackling this issue. When some lenders initially hear about us or when investors even like, you're such a niche thing, like what's the next debt you're going to address? I'm like, if we can solve this one problem at the regulator level and at some of the largest lender levels, we can literally uplift the percentage of home ownership of African-Americans that can even qualify to get a mortgage. That's huge. And so when you talk about equality, Black Americans obviously are behind um, in terms of the average percentage that own, but they also take out 20, depending on the degree, 20 to 30% more student loans for equivalent degrees and earn on average less. We are inadvertently creating more barriers to that later goal in life. And so it's it's a problem. And people say your education is a great investment. And it should help you earn more. Therefore, it shouldn't hurt you to take on the student loan debt. But if we're graduating people on average with more debt than their earning power, what are we doing now for the person mid-20 to mid-30, which is the prime buying time? It's a problem that needs solving. How big is the quantity? 17 million who are renting right now in the home buying demographic. 17 million. What I'm trying to understand is, rates have gone up recently for mortgages and that just by definition if rates go up the pool of potential home buyers or those who are can qualify for a mortgage that they can afford drops but just by definition how much does that change what is the magnitude of a of what you can do in terms of the tools loan sense offers in terms of debt to income ratio how much does that move the needle versus just is the rates changes oh now loan sense isn't for me anymore let me tell you So let me tell you something. There's more demand for what we're doing now because this high interest market is the only kind of market a first time buyer can really compete in. Because when interest rates are 2%, 
they're competing with all these investor cash offers. So even if they could afford more, their offers weren't accepted because they weren't cash buyers. That's the really sad reality. Now is actually the market that a first-time buyer, moderate income first-time buyer, can actually get their offer accepted. So our value prop right now in this market, our average boosted affordability is still $80,000, even in this interest rate. So that's even more value that we're providing is because we're helping with the boosted affordability affordability formula, we will help that bar manage their loans post-close so that once they're in an income-driven plan, it requires filing annually. We are, we could still, we're still there to help that bar so that they could stay in their home and manage the plan so that they can ultimately get forgiveness, literally transfer that 80,000 of average forgiveness into $80,000 more home, basically. And this is the only type of market. Once interest rates start to go down again, then they ha now have to compete against like 20 offers. This is what I think the regulators need to do to help first-time buyers. What they need to do is change the law so that if you submit an offer, the seller should not be able to see what type of mortgage loan that you're going to take or like the details of your financing. They should not be able to see that because what ends up happening is a seller has 20 offers and, and they just make assumptions without knowing anything. FHA loan, reject. VA loan, reject. We need to change the laws so that a seller should not, oh, they can't put 20% down. They're not going to be able to negotiate with me to offer me more, so reject. So they're making all these horrible assumptions about a person when there are all these rules to make it so that you could put less of a down payment. You could get down payment assistance, so you only have to put down 1%. Guess what? If you go to an offer that says you're putting down 1%, the seller is going to discriminate against you because they think you can't afford to pay more. Being on the sell selling side of the process, I'll say that it's not even that you're trying to discriminate. That's the advice you're given from your broker is just, oh, here are the offers. And they're saying, oh yeah, they're going to have a higher likelihood of closing because of this. And you're like, okay, I don't know shit about this. So of course I'm going to take your advice. But also I'd like to know what the stats are realistically because it doesn't seem obvious to me why if you've already pre-qualified for your mortgage and whatnot, it doesn't seem like you would be that much lower likelihood to close. Well, let me tell you, you, let me tell you, there are stats out there. It's why America, Bank of America just invested like $20 billion in this organization called NACA, which is the Neighborhood Association. It's a nonprofit. And these are low credit score, like virtually no down payment loans that NACA is helping Bank of America get to mo like mostly minority. It's something like close to 100% of their borrowers are minority, low down payment, low credit score, and they are outperforming their normal portfolio. You know why? Because they're not going to refinance and go somewhere else because yeah. other lenders might not accept them based on their credit and all these things. So they're outperforming. But it doesn't even matter. As a seller, I don't care about what a buyer does once they've closed. In fact, the incentive should be the reverse, which is an all cash offer would be more likely to not close because they have a lot of cash on the line. So if they find anything during diligence, they should be more likely to walk away than someone. I, I think that you're, what you're proposing makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. Yeah, and I think I would, I'm getting in with one of the regulators. Obviously policy is, it takes a lot of lift to actually change things. But I have the ear. And in fact, one of the regulators has changed some of the rules to specifically write out rules allowing for income-driven plans. 
in the rules that are going to get released. I know I have the ear and I really think that needs to change because regardless of whether you believe someone's going to close or not close because of their financing terms, I just think making that more transparent is a way for discrimination to occur that I think is completely hurting first-generation homeowners, first-time buyers, and it shouldn't exist. So Catalina, the name of this podcast is obviously the future. And you know, you are so deep into this space, clearly, like probably one of the leading experts. And you have the ear of regulators, you're talking to lenders. What is one thing about home ownership that's very obvious to you that is not obvious to other people? Like what do you believe is obviously the future? Okay. The future, I believe, number one, I think underwriting based on credit scores will change significantly. I think too much of our generation transacts on service agreements that don't end up on credit, like your Netflix, your mobile phone, all kinds of things that people are consistently paying that don't get counted for in their credit and building of credit. So I think there's going to be a monumental change in the way we qualify people for financing. The other projection of the future, I think we're going to move towards people buy equity over time, and then people can trade it for physical location. There's going to be some kind of debt crisis. We already are seeing that like Americans obviously go into a huge amount of debt, but there's also a segment that like also have a huge fear of debt, right? I think the future, there may be more options where instead of just thinking about a 529 plan, like helping your child or your grandchild set up a 529 plan, there's going to be also options where you can save into something where you get additional value by saving early that will be traded for a physical address. And maybe I'm giving up, maybe I'm giving away future startup ideas here. You already are working on the next thought. No, I'm just saying, I think there's going to be more of that because I'm not trying to say, oh, there's no need for 529, but I do think that the future of education is going to change. And as we think about saving for the future, a lot of people that like to think about the future for their children think about how do I help my child accelerate saving for retirement? But the one thing that's not being given enough thought is how do I actually, like if so much of retirement value comes in the value of the home, can I actually help them save for something that could be tra traded into a, for a physical address? I think that's going to exist in the next 10 to 20 years. I don't know exact details on the form, but I just have yeah. a, I just feel like it's coming. It's almost like a, version of a REIT, but for yourself. Hearing you say though, is that you d definitely agree that ownership of assets is obviously the future and we have to get more people that their contributions to, to have more of an like tradable micro asset that yeah. relates to a right. wealth unit. Right. Absolutely. I've benefited from that. So I believe other people should be able to have that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Caitlin has this list. She calls it My Younger Self. And it's basically a bunch of timeless books that she would tell her younger self to read or reread. Give us, can you give us a book that you'd want to share with your younger self and why? I read the book, but I also, he had a Netflix series come up is How to Get Rich. I got the book because my sister sent it to me and she's like, he has no concrete strategy around student loans besides paying it off quicker. And she was like, and he's, and this is the best I've found. So all my books, I love, I just love learning. Like the majority I read are nonfiction, but because I'm involved so much in the financial, personal finance angle, like at my younger self, I didn't really, I wasn't this much into personal finance. I think I would have found my path to loan sense and like 
my path and passion in life sooner if I understood and was and discovered this passion earlier. So really appreciate you joining us here on Obviously the Future. Thank you all for having me. <laughs>